Good evening, and welcome to Teen Connect on WDIY 88.1 FM. I'm your host, Prithisha Kathari, and today I'd like to focus our segment on a topic of growing importance, controversy, and potential, and that is the subject of artificial intelligence. We often throw around this buzzword in contexts ranging from social media, automation and transportation, robotics, education, medicine, and the tech industry. Machine learning, deep learning, and the revolution of pattern recognition and prediction are pioneering new levels of human technology interactions, efficiency, and insights. But with this rapid innovation comes hesitancy and potential threats to security and human rights. Figures like Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking have voiced concerns over the threats of AI in society, and thus I think it's important for us this evening to reconcile and make sense of both the promise and responsibility that comes with the exciting developments in artificial intelligence. And so, without further ado, I would like to introduce our first guest, Dr. Prasanjit Mitra from Penn State University. Dr. Mitra is a professor of information sciences and technology and the associate dean for research, who also serves as the director of the university's Center for Socially Responsible Artificial Intelligence. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Mitra. You're welcome. My pleasure. So to kick us off, would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners, your background and how you became interested in this field, as well as its implications in society? Yeah, my background is that I came to the U.S. and uh, did my master's at the University of Texas at Austin. Actually, my undergraduate thesis was also on artificial intelligence, something called multi-objective optimization. And I did my master's, and I worked in Silicon Valley for about five years at Oracle Corporation, database company. And while I was doing that, I had been interested in artificial intelligence because, you know, as a kid, you see these science fiction movies, and you want to create these cool new technologies that do wonderful things. And so I was interested in that. Then while working at Oracle... I decided that I wanted to explore my own ideas more freely. You know, in a big, multi-billion-dollar you know, company, you can only do so much. So I wanted to be in research. So I went to Stanford and finished my PhD there. And while I was there, I also, you know, I started working on language technologies. And I was always interested in language and you know, how can we make the computer understand what we call natural language, which is the human languages that we speak. In the last 20 years or so, I have worked in that area. And once you, you, know, you work in a particular area, you dabble with things and you go around and apply it, not only to different areas. I've worked with geographers, archaeologists, chemists, and a whole bunch of other scientists, as well as moving on from, in, in, apart from natural language processing, I have worked on uh, image processing, and a little bit of robotics, data mining, and a whole bunch of related things. We decided that we needed a center for socially responsible AI, AI as in artificial intelligence, especially because we wanted the social responsibility part to be a first-class object. So when I worked in industry, we as technologists, wanted to build the best and the coolest machines. And we were thinking mostly about the technical challenges. How can we make the computer do this thing? And that's what most of Silicon Valley used to think at that time. Things have changed a little bit, but I still think fundamentally that's the focus. But I think going forward, and this perhaps should have been done even 10 years ago, we need to think about not only how can I make the computer do this thing, but if I am successful at making the computer do this thing, then what happens? And initially, you know, 10, 20 years ago, the state of the art in artificial intelligence was way behind. So it was very hard to make it understand, let's say, my accent. But right now, when I call in, they understand my accent because of advances in speech recognition technology. It was very hard to have a computer understand or, you know, let, let aside generate a sentence or a few sentences or a paragraph or what is the meaning of that paragraph. Right now we have tools that are writing essays 
And in fact, there was this language model called GPT-3, which actually was used to generate articles. And it was posted on Reddit for seven days without being discovered that it was, uh, it was a bot. So I think at that time, we were struggling to even just create some of the basics of these technologies. Maybe it was okay not to think about what happens when we are successful. But right now, it is you know, high time to think about doing it in a socially responsible way so that when we start working on an artificial intelligence project, we should, think, we should think about our social responsibility right up front and not as an afterthought because it becomes very hard to fix these technologies once they're already out and people are using them. Talking about, you know, fixing some of the issues, what are the primary ethical concerns that exist today with the development of artificial intelligence? So there are a whole, lot, whole host of ethical concerns. So, for example, the issue of bias and fairness always comes in. And the issue of bias and fairness is that, you know, are these algorithms that we are building, are they fair to all sections of society? So I think there was a paper in the uh, HCI conference, the Human Computer Interaction Conference, called PI, run by the ACM Association for Computing Machinery. And there they showed that if you search for CEO, the images that you get is largely maybe 90% or something white male. Whereas, you know, even then in the U.S., the number of female CEOs was 27%, which needs to improve, but the search engines need to improve much more. There, were, there are issues of bias and fairness that people didn't think of that are coming from the data. The, the algorithm itself is not you know, taking the images of female CEOs out uh, by malice. What is happening is it's picking things up from the web. And on the web, by and large, 90% or whatever percent that was, a very high number, of images of CEOs was male. So it's picking up the human biases, and the worst of the human biases are getting exaggerated. We need to make sure that that does not happen. We can fix it through algorithmic manipulation. We can fix it with lines of code that will check for these biases and make sure that these biases are not propagated. Then there are biases that come in because of uh, lack of, you know, lack of insight, lack of oversight. There are risks that are there because of hackers who are just doing things for fun, to, and there are malicious attacks that could happen. One example was uh, when we have self-driving cars, which are trying to look at uh, a stop sign to detect that it's a stop sign. There are, in adversarial machine learning, uh, has shown that you can go in and put some uh, strips of black and white things sticky tape or whatever on the stop sign, so that your human eye, we still see it as a stop sign. However, the machine learning solution that is being used by a self-driving car does not see it as a stop sign. It sees it as some sign with some random patterns. And if that happens, then this car would just drive through a stop sign. So essentially, this is the, you know, as artificial intelligence is coming to our world everywhere, The hackers can also come to our physical world and hack things by doing these malicious attacks. Any artificial intelligence that we build needs to protect us from such attack. And in order to do that, we need to understand what is going on inside the black box. And in a lot of cases, especially in deep learning, we do not fully understand as much as we would like to. There's a lot of progress that is being made. The community understands that we need to understand what's going on in these algorithms. The unethical uses can range to, for example, things like mortgage lending. You know, if you have a model which uses some criteria to to lend uh, to you know to lend to people, and we have had biases in society where we were not lending to people of a certain race, the system picks up that bias and says, no, you should not be lending to that. A particular race of people, uh, even worse, in case of hiring. So if you, it's, it's again tied to the same example. If you look at what does machine learning do? Machine learning looks at existing data that is given to it and says, oh, who are the successful CEOs and what is common to them? 
It goes in and looks at the successful CEOs and say, oh, hey, 90% or whatever, 70% or 60% of these CEOs are men. That means being a man is maybe a factor that is important for being a successful CEO. And it learns that bias. And now what it does is it ha- even has a chance to exaggerate that bias to say, hey, we should give so many extra points to men who are applying. This is the type of unethical use or unethical design that we should stop. There are ethical issues related to automation. Um, you know, we have these tools that we are using, and that puts more and more of our workforce out of jobs. And now if we have a robot that puts someone who is working in a mine and is 55 years old, we say, okay, they should go somewhere else and retrain themselves and get jobs. It's not that easy to move from place to place. It's not that easy to retrain ourselves when we are, when we have been in industry for 30 years and that industry has perhaps taken a toll on our health. So there are vulnerable sections of our society who are getting impacted by the application of artificial intelligence, even if we take care of biases, even if we make sure that there aren't any attacks. And we as a society and as a government must take care of those who are being replaced by the application of automation. You know, then there are ethical uses related to superintelligence and so on. Those are perhaps more than 20 years away. I'm not, you know, there are many such topics that we could talk about. No, especially with you were talking about with biases in these algorithms. My debate team was studying policing this year. And so one controversy that came up was policing algorithms mm-hmm. and you know, the amount of racial biases that there can be in these algorithms that are actually a detriment to some communities. So it's an absolutely relevant issue to tackle. For our listeners, I've been talking with Dr. Mitra from Penn State University with his insights into the newest applications and threats of our AI paradigm. We were talking about some of the ethical concerns that are raised via the growth of AI recently. And I wanted to ask, so with the initiative at Penn State Center for Socially Responsible AI, how much of it is safeguarding or fixing some of the biases in current AI technology and how much of it is intended to foster community awareness and responsible use, especially among tech firms and larger companies that may rely on AI? Oh, we want to do all of it. So we want to do research on where the gaps are in existing products, in existing technologies, and find things that might be exploited before the hackers exploit them. We want to develop a new technologies in a socially responsible, robust, fair manner, and we want to do outreach to industry to have them as partners while we are doing things and to educate our workforce about these topics. And and in general, our talks right now are open to anyone who can come on Zoom, which is the platform that we are using. We possibly did some broadcast on Facebook, and we are willing to do that. If you use Facebook or YouTube, I'll be happy to get feedback or suggestions from anyone. We have a charter that we want to reach everyone and anyone who is interested all around the world. And one of the advantages of doing this in a sort of a COVID world is that we are doing it remotely. And so people from China can participate in our uh, seminars, whereas when we do things in person, perhaps only people uh, who are in Penn State and the neighboring communities are there physically. So in the future, we intend to, even if we do things physically, we intend to have a web presence and broadcast it, and we would like the public to be fully involved to the extent that they want to be involved. Yeah, and for our listeners, so this is the AI for Social Impact seminar series that the center is pioneering. And as I was doing some background research, some of the past seminars have been measuring economic development from space with machine learning, political polarization, and international conflicts through the lens of NLP and mobility networks for modeling the spread of COVID-19. So there's plenty of you know very interesting topics and modern topics that are being explored through these seminar series. 
I also wanted to ask, so there is an upcoming event called AI in the post-COVID world. And I'm just wondering whether you knew the theme of this event or what are your specific insights into how you think COVID has impacted the development or trajectories of AI? So I have some initial thoughts that this is one person speaking. That is why we will have this event on May 13th. It's, again, open free to anyone who wants to join in. Just go to our website. It asks for your email address and name, and you can register, and we'll send you the Zoom link. To answer the question, I think the, we have a few objectives. The primary objective here is to bring the entire community together, scholars, people in the industry, government folks, um, general public, school kids, anyone who wants to come in and participate is welcome. Why are we doing this? Because we believe that because of COVID, AI is changing and will change. And AI has a chance to change the world even more in a post-COVID world. Let me give you some examples. So how is COVID changing AI? Well, apart from the fact that we are spending more time online, perhaps, these days, what has happened is the traditional models that we have built to understand human behavior. Let's take an example of some business. Uh, clothing retailer. They had some human behavior that they build their supply chains on, that they build their production on, that they build their businesses on. Now, because of COVID, well, people have stopped going to the had stopped at least, maybe it's coming back, to retail shops. Because of COVID, the demands of what we are consuming has changed drastically in certain sectors, let's say in travel. Now, all of these businesses have been using artificial intelligence to do what we call to build models, to build some forms of predictions of what is going on in the future. Now, what you have is you have this world where the old models no longer apply because the rules have suddenly changed. And now that the rules have suddenly changed, we had to come up with newer models that do not have the luxury of having 10 years of data how people behave and then build a model for human behavior. This in the AI world or in the computational world is known as a cold start problem. That is, you know, when a startup is starting, they don't have data from users and customers. How do they figure out and make predictions? So once the world has changed, we had to, you know, make our AI much more nimble, our machine learning much more nimble to learn and change. So that's an example of where COVID has changed AI. Now, in a post-COVID world, we believe that AI has uh, possibly a bigger role to play. For example, robotics uh, might be used because people still do not want to do certain tasks or, or people find it at, let's suppose that COVID doesn't just go away one day. Well, although I would like it to, but it, it keeps going down and coming back up. And during that sort of twilight period, uh, people might be cautious. Or let's suppose we haven't had COVID for a year or two years, and again, suddenly somewhere some breakout happens, and then we have to be cautious. Already, because of people being asked to stay indoors, businesses have relied more and more on robots to do. So the field of robotics has been impacted, and we have gone into automating a whole bunch of things. And we had to do that because we had to do that now to survive, to make sure that we have our supply chains are still working. Well, if human beings can't come in or should not come in because it's dangerous for them, let's make sure that we use these types of robots. But guess what? What happens is now in the post-COVID world is when we are ready to come back, then companies might see, oh, these robots did the work fine and they're cheaper. Now, that creates a huge unemployment, potentially could create. And how do we fix that? Have we thought about that? We need to think about the impact of COVID on our world, which has allowed maybe more automation to come in and how it impacts our society. And it has accelerated the adoption of automation much more so that we need to think right now and make sure that we take care of people who are displaced. So that's another example of, um, and, and the way we can do that is 
via AI uh, to some extent. But I think we need scholars and thinkers to think about these solutions, and we need governments to step in and plan and create policies that make sure that people are protected. So these are some of the things that we will be discussing in this uh, upcoming conference. But essentially, the, the two main ideas are how has COVID changed AI and how can AI change the world, hopefully, for the, and we need to make sure that it is for the better in a post-COVID world. Absolutely relevant points. One thing that you mentioned before was the extent of collaboration and especially multidisciplinary collaboration that goes on in some of these projects. I know on the website it talks about how policy experts, engineers, ethicists, philosophers, and sociologists can all be involved in some of these initiatives. Can you talk a little bit more about how people from such different professions can interact in this common goal of forwarding responsible AI use? Yeah, it's, it's not going to happen in one day, but it has already happened, and it will happen slowly. So I think the common goal becomes, okay, once we have a project and we bring in these people into the room to talk about things, we can talk about what the AI, the technical person, is saying, okay, I want to implement this technology, and this is, uh, let's say, a social media communication technology, or, or this is a camera that, a very cheap camera that can track people and do things. What we want is, by, by having people from these different fields, the sociologist in the room is not going to tell us, you know, what lines of code we need to write. The sociologist in the room is looking at it and saying, okay, if this comes in, what happens to society, and they know things that have happened in society before from their discipline. So, for example, you know, we are talking about false advertising, misinformation, disinformation, deep fakes, and so on and so forth. This is not new per se. When the printing press first came in, people started and, and became cheap and available. People started printing a whole bunch of things on paper, and... There were newspapers that were printing false or fake news articles in order to influence. Maybe they had some agenda. And then society grew up to say, ah, we need markers of trust in these papers. So if somebody slips in a newspaper underneath my door, I, I might not believe, I possibly won't believe what they're saying. I'll read it. Maybe say, oh, this seems interesting. I need to check it out. If it's the New York Times, I say, okay, I perhaps trust this 95%, 98%, whatever my trust is, so most possibly this is true. Now, when somebody, the technologist is saying that, okay, I'm going to do this in social media, then the social scientist is saying, hey, have you thought about this? The policy people are saying, oh, by the way, if you do that and, you know, 20,000 workers are out of a job, we should work on how do we do to you know, what do we do to take care of them? Or do we, you know, what is the best policy? And sometimes it might be that, well, this technology should not be used or whoever is using this has to pay some, uh, some amount of uh, uh, money as a tax or as a retraining fund, which will go to retrain people. The psychologist is coming in and saying, well, if you do that, people are going to think and behave in this way because, for example, in Let's take the example of social media. There, is, there are a lot of studies now where it has been shown that some social media use, if not a significant amount of social media use by some people, result in more depression. And this idea is not new. It existed even before social media. We technical people, or at least most of us, did not know about this impact. So by having all these people together in the same room, we are making sure that we are discussing the, all the aspects of this technology in a holistic way. And in doing so, we are going to adjust the development of the technology from day one. We are going to say, okay, then we will have these safeguards. We will not make it as easy to copy. We will put in some watermarks or, or, or whatever it is so that it cannot be faked. And those things can have a technological solution, 
there is maybe a communications person who needs to come in and say, okay, we have to talk to people about this in this way, and people are going to be using this to talk within themselves in this way, and people are going to spread misinformation this way, and so on and so forth. So is that the idea? We need to, we, we get everyone in the, in the room not to have the psychologist tell the computer programmer how to program, but to look at the problem using a much wider lens than what just the programmers would do. Yeah, I think it's definitely important to highlight the diversity of implications and the need, therefore, for diverse voices and expertise to tackle some of the ramifications of AI. I was also looking, you know, recently the EU actually had a conference on AI regulation. So I think these conversations about policy are going to, you know, keep coming up in the future as we try to foster this collaboration and responsible use of AI. So thank you so much, Dr. Mitra. This has been incredibly enlightening, I think, for our listeners. The last questions I want to ask are, where can our listeners go to learn more about this subject or perhaps about some of the seminars that they can attend? Just I would put in a shameless plug for our website, ai.psu.edu. It should be easy to remember. And there, if you, can, if you go in and you click on News and Events and click on Upcoming Events, you'll see the upcoming events. You click on Past Events, and there are our past events, if you missed the lecture, in a lot of cases, where the lecturer has allowed us, we have put in the videos of those, and we are working on a whole bunch of other things in the next year, so stay tuned. Are there any final words you have to say about this topic, perhaps a little bit about, you know, some of your hopes for the future in using this technology? So I think AI has a great potential to do a whole lot of social good as long as it's harnessed properly. And we had doomsday scenarios with nuclear power, and we have managed to handle nuclear power for about 100 years, except for a few cases where we didn't. And there are costs there with respect to environmental issues that perhaps even 100 years is not enough to understand. With respect to AI, I think the potential is perhaps even greater because it can be used in so many disciplines, all aspects of our lives, I am quite hopeful that humanity will come up with a way to harness it to keep sort of the so-called evildoers or people who want to exploit it for nefarious purposes, and we will be able to do a whole lot of social good with this technology in the future. So I'm maybe more on the optimist side of the debate. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today, Dr. Micha. Oh, you're most welcome. Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. It's been a lot of fun to talk about something that I'm really passionate about. So thanks. For our listeners, I've been talking with Dr. Mitra from Penn State University with his insights into the newest applications and threats of our AI paradigm. I'm your host, Prithisha Kathari, and when we come back, I'll be talking with Dr. Dan Lepresti from Lehigh University in our segment on artificial intelligence and how it intersects with matters of social justice and human rights. Celtic Fair celebration of Celtic music and culture, from its roots in Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Brittany, and Galicia, to its branches in Australia, Cape Breton, Canada, Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, and the Lehigh Valley. Music, interviews, and a weekly culture calendar, every Thursday from 7 to 9, here on WDIY. Connect to WDIY with our new app. Download for free from the Apple or Google Store and enjoy the great music, news, and programs you love on the go. The easy-to-use app is where you can listen to WDIY Live or your favorite music shows on demand with our two-week archive feature. Download and share the WDIY app with your friends and family and introduce them to Many Choices, Real Voices. Galactic Travels brings you hour-long soundscapes of electronic, ambient, and space music. That's Thursday night at 11, right here on WDIY Allentown, Lehigh Valley Public Radio, 88.1 FM and WDIY.org. Many choices, real voices.
Welcome back to Teen Connect. Thus far, we've explored how advances in AI have the potential to help and harm affected communities. Dr. Mitra spoke to us about his and general research in the field, the biases in predictive algorithms, the obstacles in machine learning in the post-COVID world due to unprecedented behavioral and economic patterns, and about the need for multidisciplinary collaborations and policy considerations that can better guide ethical artificial intelligence development. Now, our next guest has been directly involved in a myriad of policy forums, educational efforts, international boards, and AI research applied to specific issues of social justice and human rights. And today, he is here to talk about all of that and more. From Lehigh University, I'd like to welcome Dr. Dan Leprezzi to Teen Connect. Good afternoon, Patricia. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Yes, thank you so much. So continuing on our discussion, we spoke to Dr. Mitra previously about the horizons and challenges of AI development. So I was wondering if you could provide a general overview of your education, roles, and how you became invested in research in AI. Oh, certainly. I'm happy to do that. So I guess you could say that AI or topics very closely related to AI have infused my interest in my research and my teaching from the very start. Um, it's interesting that now AI has taken on a meaning that seemed to encompass a lot of things, um, whereas if you went back about 10 years, that wasn't always the case. But it's now this broad catch-all term. I did my undergraduate work at Dartmouth College in, in computer science and math, and then I went on and got my PhD from Princeton in computer science. From there, I went on to teach at Brown University. I was on the faculty at Brown. And the whole time, my research, my teaching, the papers I was publishing, um, the students I were, was advising were working on topics that could now be called AI, but they would also fall in different categories. A very broad interest in bioinformatics, development of, of highly parallel computer architectures. And then I went from Brown University to help start a research lab in Princeton, and there my work turned to document analysis and handwriting recognition. And then I went to my labs and I started adding some security work and some speech synthesis research as well. All of those things use techniques that might be broadly classified as AI. And then I came to Lehigh University and just basically continued doing many of the same things and adding some new things as well. So, you know, in a nutshell, I would say that, that AI or AI techniques have infused almost everything I've done in my professional career. Right. So talking about that, you know, you mentioned cybersecurity, bioinformatics. In general, over the years that you've been working in the field, what are some of the new threats as well as solutions that are being pioneered, specifically with regard to AI and its impacts on um, human rights? Right. So if we sort of focus on AI and human rights, which is an um, incredibly important topic area and a very big topic area as well, so, you know, you can imagine both the ways in which AI can be used for, to the benefit of society to help facilitate um, a more equitable, um, more just society. And at the same time, there are also very serious risks, too, if AI is applied in certain ways. It's such a powerful tool that it could be either intentionally or unintentionally used in ways that would be to the detriment of society as well. So it really is one of these very mixed situations, the potential to do great good, but also the potential to do serious harm. With regard then to some of your research, could you speak a little bit about what the goals have been in supporting the protection of human rights? Or there's also a project I know that was recently published in Lehigh University's news, which was applying AI in the fight against human trafficking. If you could speak a little bit about that. Well, this is a very good example. And the fact is, it turns out, as, as we're speaking for this interview, I'm working with some colleagues, a couple um, NGOs, nonprofits, and also in law enforcement, too, um, in Lehigh County, in fact, to write a proposal for the Department of Justice um, to, to advance some of this work. I've got separate collaborations, international collaborations, with some other colleagues um, in the U.S. And, and, and elsewhere around the world, via the Code 8.7 initiative, which is an initiative that is run or organized in part out of the United Nations universities, the UN too. Human trafficking, hopefully all the listeners know, is an incredibly um, serious crime. It's a, an enormous activity. Um, there's labor trafficking, there's sex trafficking. Millions and millions of individuals are negatively impacted by trafficking every year. It's a very complicated and difficult crime for law enforcement to track down and investigate because it's distributed, because it tends to be hidden amongst other activities that are not illegal, but that might look 
similar to trafficking activities. And as a result, it's a, a significant challenge that requires a lot of effort by law enforcement right now. So one question is whether there are techniques from AI that could be brought to bear to help lessen some of the burden in coping with, for example, the information overload, the sheer amount of information that a law enforcement um, uh, professional would have to sift through in order to detect the possible presence of a trafficking situation in their jurisdiction. It's not as simple as, you know, uh, looking at a stoplight on the street and saying the light's red or the light's green. There's a lot of data, there's a lot of information that needs to be brought together. And then we would like to develop AI techniques to help facilitate that and as a result um, allow them to be more effective at identifying these kinds of activities earlier on and then to really be able to understand the nature of a trafficking activity. All of the perpetrators, all of the victims, uh, what are called the survivors and the vulnerable individuals in the population too. So that in a nutshell is the goal and there are a lot of sub-pieces of it that fall under the, the general topic of AI and AI research. And one of the areas that's particularly interesting in this initiative, I think, is it's the intersection of the AI technology with the community as well as public policy. And I also saw that you have a role in the CCC. And I know if you could speak a little bit about that organization, what it aims to do with regard to the intersection of it with governmental, social and economic policy, as well as community awareness. Now, that's a very interesting question. So CCC is an amazing organization, and I've got 19 other wonderful colleagues who are volunteers. Basically, we're all volunteers. These are academics, you know, doing top-level research at universities and industrial research around the U.S. And there's a public website, obviously, that people can find out about the CCC and our parent organization, which is a computing research organization, which is the main organization to support and facilitate and catalyze um, computing research in the United States actually in North America more generally. So I've got 19 colleagues on CCC who have expertise in different areas of computing. Not all of them would call themselves AI researchers, but the whole range of computing and computing research. And we work with the community um, to help them vision or envision new, fundamentally new research directions. We help um, inform and interact with funding agencies in Washington, D.C., for example, the National Science Foundation, who would like to be able to fund research that comes from the community. Um, and we also will um, help inform the public and, and, and media, too, about our perspective, you know, not a, not a biased perspective, not a proprietary perspective, but as computing, computer science researchers with a broad view of what computing research can do and also its impact on society. We're very concerned with the impact of computing on society. This isn't a group that is <laughs> all rah, 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 you know, everything that, we, everything that our field does is good. We are just as aware as anyone of the potential negative ramifications of computing and uh, computing research. So we want to make sure that the work that we do and our colleagues do is well-grounded, is aware of all the potential risks and all the negative impacts it could have, as well as the positive impacts. So another project that I also saw that you have done some work on in the past as well as currently is the, uh, and I think it's extremely relevant now, is the pro bono work and expertise and research in the area of electronic voting systems. So I, I guess for our listeners, like, what is the role of AI in the U.S. voting system? Well, so th those might be two separate topics, although you could definitely see some overlap between AI and voting. Voting is, of course, incredibly important for our democracy. It's, a, it's important that it's done in a way that, that citizens have trust in the way the elections are you know, conducted. The U.S. has a very interesting um, you know, tradition of the way we handle our elections that is very different from the rest of the world. Despite the bumps along the road, and there certainly have been bumps recently, um, our system is actually incredibly robust and powerful. And part of that power comes from the fact that it's distributed. It's not controlled by a single entity, <laughs> but it actually is a lot of individual entities spread throughout the country that, that function together as a single unifying force, but they do it individually in their own ways, which is a very interesting concept and would not be understood in other countries. But that's the way we do it here, and it's turned to be a very effective system. What we're worried about, you know, as computing researchers, not so much as AI, is the inappropriate use of computing technologies in conducting elections. We know the power of computers. We know, you know, the way computers can be abused, used and abused. And we just want to be sure that when computers are used um, to facilitate elections, they're done in the safest, most trustworthy way possible. 
knowing all the ways in which, you know, computers can be compromised is, you know, a, a very, very important to understand. I think everyone here is familiar with the threats, you know, viruses and worms and things like that, but also more subtle effects, uh, more subtle ways that computers could be either programmed intentionally or maybe have software bugs that would have impact on the results of an election or at least on the trustworthiness of an election. So we just want to make sure that technology is used appropriately and correctly and that we're not, you know, it's not a question of saying, oh, you know, it's a computer. A computer can't make mistakes. Well, we know for a fact computers make mistakes, right? So as a result, it really is important to understand what can be done safely and ways of uh, identifying and remediating problems if they're problems, but also build a system, an overall system, which uses the computers, but also the people and the other aspects of the process to end up with an election processes that are trustworthy, that are open, that are transparent. So does that also involve then collaboration with legislators or electoral commissions, or what is the then enforcing mechanism for what your work discovers? Well, so there are all different ways, and and this is what citizens should do, too. We're just citizens, right? So, I mean, we're computing professionals, but we're citizens like everyone else. And whether it's at the local level, at the county level, at the state level, at the national level, there are opportunities for citizens to have input and to make their positions known. So there are times, you know, that any one of us might go to a county meeting and say they have concerns about the way, you know, a particular machine might be used. There, there are national, um, there's no... There's no legislative requirement that the whole country use a single voting system, for example. That, doesn't, that kind of process doesn't exist in the U.S. But the National Institutes of Standards and Technology does issue some what are called voluntary guidelines for voting systems. And, you know, those aren't, again, because we can't mandate or require. It's not the way our country works. You know, the voluntary guidelines are the strongest statements by the government entity, which is NIST, about the way voting you know, ought to be performed, about the way computers ought to be used in voting systems to, to, to make them safe and secure and trustworthy. So we'll provide input um, to those kinds of processes when there are call f- there's calls for input, calls for public input. You know, just recently, um, I won't give the full details on this, but a very major public technology figure said that they thought that, you know, there'll be a time very soon when we can all vote on smartphones, made a public statement. It was actually more of an off-the-cuff statement and that's the kind of thing that computing security researchers, you know, are very, very nervous about. We don't want to see that. Yes, smartphones are incredibly convenient. We do a lot of things on our smartphones, a lot of things that, that for example, you're banking on a smartphone. But voting is one of those things that's very, very special, very, very different. And the convenience of being able to vote on your smartphone is does not offset the risks and the dangers, um, the security dangers, the dangers of manipulation the dangers of disruption of an election if it were conducted on a smartphone. So the risk is <laughs> way, way bigger than the potential benefit. So that's an example. And we'll provide input on either public statements, um, you know, we'll write uh, reports, and we'll do public testimony. That's, that's a, you know, sometimes there are court cases, in, in which case, you know, me and my colleagues might get involved in that as well. Again, providing testimony as an ex- expert witness let's say, in a court case where a certain kind of voting system is being challenged. You've been listening to Dr. Dan Lepretzi on Team Connect with me, your host, Prithisha Kathari. So, Dr. Lepresti, with regard to some of your other research areas, you know, I read about biometric security, data mining, text mining techniques that were specifically used in this human trafficking process, as well as document and text analyses. Could you speak a little more, perhaps, about one of these areas and what your findings uh, or contributions have been thus far? I'll speak a little bit about the application of AI in the realm of human trafficking. It's one of the things that we're thinking about. And it's interesting because this, even though we're talking about human trafficking now, this also has parallels in other applications like healthcare. So it turns out that a lot of very valuable information um, in law enforcement or actually in healthcare is recorded in what are called narratives. So narratives are the reports that a doctor writes or that, you know, a police officer writes or someone in law enforcement writes in English language that is their understanding of the current situation. So I'm sure you've seen your doctor dictate, you know, after you've had an examination from the doctor, will dictate um, either, you know, via speech or type some written comments. Same thing is true with an investigation, you know, a police investigation. They will write a written report. And this is supplemented by what's called coded data. 
So in the case of your doctor, it will be your patient number, your name, you know, your birth date, all of those things. The computer's got some easy data to work with, which is the coded data. You know, a date, a birth date has got a very standard format. You know, your age, your gender, those kinds of things, your health condition, your test results. Same thing is true with, uh, you know, an investigation of a crime or an incident. Um, it'll have, you know, the identification of the individuals who are involved, the location, the time of day. All that information can be coded in a very simple way that a computer can understand. What is interesting, though, is to look at the narrative. As it turns out, both in the health case but also in the you know, case of law enforcement, the narrative has a lot of important information that simply isn't encoded elsewhere. It's only in the narrative. It's not encoded in some of the standard fields um, that are in the regular forms. And to really be able to understand a complicated crime like human trafficking, you've got to dig down into the narrative to understand what's going on. You can't just get it from the coded fields. Again, there'll be analogies in healthcare you can imagine as well, where the, the secret to a, a complicated illness that someone might be suffering is not coded you know, in a, in a standard way, but it's present in the narrative. So we need techniques that can process these narratives and process them as effectively as a human expert would process the narrative. And the trouble is, you know, in the case of, you know, for example, um, human trafficking activity, the threads that tie together uh, one of these crimes across multiple individuals, maybe multiple years, multiple locations, are spread throughout dozens and dozens, hundreds, maybe even thousands of these narratives, of these individual incidents. And then, you know, a given agency might have millions of these narratives. So the question is, how can you, you know, find this thread that weaves its way, it's a very narrow thread that weaves its way through thousands, hundreds, dozens of narratives spread out amongst millions of narratives. It's an incredibly daunting task, as you can imagine. A human could do it if they had all the time in the world, or a team of humans that was a big team of humans. But it's not easy right now for computers to do this kind of cleaning of this kind of very, very subtle clues and signs from narratives. So one of the things that we want to do um, in our collaborations is develop better methods to be able to process very large amounts of narrative text and extract information about people, places, things, and then try to make some of these connections, not to make decisions about them, not to have the AI make decisions about them, but to call them to the attention of the professionals. Because the professionals, if their attention is drawn to those, can look at it and then say, okay, this is a real incident. This does deserve further investigation or not. So it's very much like finding a needle in a haystack. And that's the goal of, you know, that's example. That's a high level of characterization of the goal of one project that would apply AI to the human trafficking problem. And with regard to, you know, these real world applications that AI is applied to, is there any way that you incorporate some of these findings or methodologies or understanding of how AI can be used for social good in your curriculum at Lehigh University or where you've taught in the past? Yeah, it's always a really good idea to do that. Everyone learns better if they can see a connection between the abstract things that they're learning in the real world. So uh, clearly a, a big complicated project, especially one that involves a lot of sensitive data, you can't directly pull that over and use it in university for obvious reasons. But the students will learn the basic techniques that we're talking about that could be useful in this kind of an application. And then we'll typically illustrate it in some way to the students so they begin to understand the nature of the problem. I'm not going to give them, you know, let's say millions of narratives <laughs> to try to process with code that they write. That would be a daunting task. But there's sometimes we can give them very large data sets that are real world data sets that have this kind of noise, data sets that have been made public. So there are a lot of examples of these real world public data sets out there, most of which, you know, don't involve direct connections to any people. Obviously, we have to be very, very careful about exposing any private or personal information. And then using these data sets that have been published that are public, students can try out some of these techniques on a small scale to see how they work, to see where they're likely to break, to see the kinds of problems they're likely to introduce, the kinds of mistakes they're likely to make. When we're focusing on issues of bias and fairness, we can, even though those are high-level human concepts, we can sometimes talk about them in mathematical terms as well and illustrate them and demonstrate them with you know, data sets that we've developed for that purpose. And then the students can also learn about some of the negative aspects of this, too, so they can be aware of it and understand it when they go out in the real world. 
I guess along these same lines, I saw that you recently left the role as director of the Data X initiative at Lehigh. Could you speak a little bit more about what that endeavor aims to do? Um, yeah, so Lehigh decided to establish an initiative. At the time, data, the term data science didn't really exist. It was just starting to be invented <laughs> around, around the world. And this was about probably about seven years ago. There was a tremendous interest from students in computer science, and then even students who weren't going to major in computer science, there was tremendous interest in the computational techniques that would help them analyze data in a wide variety of other fields, whether it's other engineering fields, humanities, the social sciences, business, they were all saying, wait a minute, you know, I'm seeing all these methods now coming to bear on, you know, data. So data is the thing. (laughs) Data is the new oil, as they say. And, you know, I need to learn something about this. This is what the students were saying. So Lehigh decided to make an investment um, in, um, you know, sort of starting to grow this activity across the university and basically bootstrap it or spark it and created this data X initiative. And that led to um, some very interdisciplinary faculty hiring on a number of other activities that I did to help spark some of this activity at Lehigh. Um, there were symposia, you know, bringing in, you know, very influential researchers um, from a wide variety of fields. Um, there were seminar series. There were some seed funding grants that allow faculty to bootstrap their own research and go more in a data science type of direction. And that lasted for a, a period of five years at the university and really sparked a lot of interesting things and a lot of interesting collaborations, teaching and research. And now those things are going under their own uh, head of steam at this point. And, you know, so Lehigh made this transition, I think, very, very nicely. And I am happy to have been a little, little part of it So as a result of DataX. Now, I'm interested, when we talked with Dr. Mitra and I asked him, what is the change in dynamics that COVID has brought in the realm of AI? So I'm curious to hear your perspective, especially talking about data science, you know, in kind of a society where a lot of circumstances where we don't really have a lot of data about some of these phenomenon that we've been observing because of COVID. How do you think that impacts some of the developments in either AI or data science? Yeah, those are very interesting problems because, I mean, a good example is what some of the companies were doing. They were getting pretty good at predicting consumer behavior. If you look at like Amazon, for example, or Google, right, or Uber, or, you know, all of those companies um, that, you know, basically lived by starting to predict consumer behavior. And as a result, they would stock their warehouse based on predictions about human behavior. So Amazon would say, we'd expect people to buy a certain number of this, this, and this in a given month, and we'll move it closer, we'll store it in a warehouse, so when they order it, um, we can deliver it very rapidly and very efficiently at a low cost. So all of those predictions, airlines were making predictions <laughs> about the flights that people would take. Hotels were making predictions about the number of customers they would see. Restaurants were making predictions. You know, some of these are relatively small, um, so they might not be using advanced AI techniques, but you can believe the big companies like Amazon and Walmart and United Airlines and Hertz Rental Car, right? I mean, Marriott Hotels were making predictions um, before the pandemic hit. And then the pandemic hit, and all of a sudden, their model of the world was, to- and everyone's model of the world was totally changed, right? So now you could no longer predict as easily what people would want to buy. And all of a sudden, everyone wanted to buy toilet paper, right? You needed the basic supplies. And that's why we had these shortages. The manufacturers had made predictions, very reasonable predictions. Amazon, Walmart, grocery store chains, all were making predictions that were no longer valid because the world had changed. Now, you know, I'd like to say that this is the only time we'll experience something like this kind of disruption. And I do hope it is the only time we experience in our lifetimes. But there will be something else. You know, it will come soon. It will be some kind of disruption that causes the predictions based on past history to be wrong. So what you really need are AI techniques. And we talk about this, the brittleness of AI techniques. There's something called data drift, which is to say that if all your data that you used to build your system was collected 10 years ago, um, guess what? The current data is going to be different than the data was 10 years ago. And, you know, if you collect data now, it's going to be valid tomorrow maybe, but it won't be valid two years from now. So AI systems need to be able to both track what's called data drift, you know, the change in consumer preferences, the change in what causes people to become ill, what causes people to become addicted to substance abuse. Um, All of those things are moving targets. And AI systems, you know, the good news is they can be built to be flexible and to understand this, but they can be fooled just as easily as we can be fooled when there's a huge disruption like the pandemic. 
Right. So I guess to close off the segment, then, what are your hopes with regard to either, you know, some of the interdisciplinary collaborations you talked about or new directions we can take AI, especially as we get through the pandemic? What are your prospects or hopes for the future in this field? Well, I think AI has, has got tremendous potential to make human life better, to help society to have a safer, juster, healthier society. And there are also the downsides, as we discussed. So, you know, this is a combination of the experts, you know, knowing what they're doing, both in universities and in industry. It's a combination of government having the right approach to um, regulations, not trying to regulate everything, but having the right approach to regulations. Um, And then really the most critical part is, you know, society as a whole, citizens everywhere, understanding both the positives and the negatives, being attuned to the risks and understanding the risks very, very well, being educated about the risks. And then having opportunities to voice their opinions and have their opinions heard by by government, by industry, by academia. So it really is a very interrelated, interconnected um, you know, entity or organism, if you will, that is no one working in isolation, inventing something and just throwing it out into the world and unleashing it on the world. It really has to be a, a collaboration. I guess that's the best term, a collaboration. I'm involving everyone in society. And then we'll have the best possible results and hopefully we'll minimize the serious downsides of AI. Definitely important to get a diversity of thought as well as opinion with some of these developments. So if our listeners want to learn more about what you are doing at Lehigh or some of your past work, where can they look online to be able to look into some of these areas? Well, with respect to to me specifically, obviously my, my webpage at Lehigh is a good place to start. And I'm always happy to answer questions if someone has a question about a specific activity I'm involved in. I often say that that I won't know all the answers, but I often know other people who will know the answers to a specific question. Uh, there are a lot of people doing great work in this area, both at Lehigh and also other places around the Lehigh Valley, around Pennsylvania, and around the world. So this is such a big, huge, hot area, and it will continue to be that way. It's going to have a very big impact on our society. It really is incumbent on everyone uh, to learn as much as they can at the way it will impact them and affect them and their neighbors and their community too. And, you know, all the, all the really good AI researchers I know care deeply about what others think. It's not just their own personal, you know, program that they've got in their head, but they really do care about the impact that we're having on society as well. Love to hear from people. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lepresti. Would you mind just for the segment to provide either your email or the website address or your page? Oh, for sure. So, so my, my Lehigh email that people can use is dal9 at lehigh.edu. Or if you go on the Lehigh website and type Daniel Lopresti, I'm, I'm sure you'll end up with my homepage there. Or you can, if someone wants to write it down, it's www.cse, computer science and engineering, so it's cse dot lehigh dot edu and then a slash and then a tilde and then my last name which is lopresti l-o-p-r-e-s-t-i which is a whole mouthful but (laughs) no that's wonderful thank you so much i was so excited to bring this topic on air because as a young researcher and debater I've been fascinated with the power of computers to mimic, predict, and strengthen human actions. I've tinkered around with using machine learning to predict genetic disease, and I hope to continue research in this field as I go off to college. That being said, I've also debated and studied extensively about the biases in many AI algorithms, such as those used in social media filtering as well as predictive policing. I've argued for the need for policy regulation in AI on my high school debate team, and so trying to reconcile the immense good and the risk of these advanced tools has been tricky, and it's not so black and white. As we've heard today, AI is as much about revolution and progress as it is about responsibility and ethics. Thank you so much for being a part of this evolving discussion. I'm Prithish Kathari on Teen Connect WDIY 88.1 FM.